Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 90, released on October 10, 2018. Today we're going to talk about Amazon's wages and taxes, Boulderton's new Liquidity One fund, and £20 million in funding for Huel. We have also got two pre-recorded interviews lined up, one with Jonas Höckestein, the co-founder and CTO of Monzo, and the other with Dmitry Zaporozhets, the co-founder and CTO of Europe's freshly minted unicorn GitLab. I am your host, Andre Degeler, tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik in Edinburgh, our research analyst and feature writer. Natalie, you have just come back from Paris, right? So how did it go and did you see any scooters? Yes. So Paris was wonderful. I didn't have enough time to actually get on the scooters, but they are everywhere and they are moving very quickly on the sidewalk. So if you're there... Be careful and watch out because the whole scooter etiquette thing with pedestrians hasn't totally happened yet. So watch where you're walking. God, this is something I was actually kind of afraid of when I'm thinking about uh, push scooters coming to uh, modern cities. But I guess uh, sidewalks in Paris are like wider uh, than uh, elsewhere like Amsterdam, right? Yeah, Paris, I think, is really best experienced by foot. And being a pedestrian in Paris has usually been pretty good, except you sometimes have to watch where you're walking. But now you have to kind of look up also and watch out for scooters because people are really having a lot of fun with them and there could be some dangerous accidents. Okay, I do hope that Bird and Lime and all those uh, guys and girls will just come up with a way to educate uh, the users about where uh, and where not to uh, use uh, use the scooters. So, uh, without further ado, let us dive straight into the news that's coming our way over the past uh, few days. And uh, Natalie, would you start with uh, uh, the biggest deal of this week? Sure. So last week, the biggest deal that we recorded at tech.eu comes from Alstone Medical. Alstone is from Cambridge in the UK, and they raised 35 million US dollars for their breathalyzer-based diagnostic solution. So Alstone is a really interesting med tech company, and they've recently won the 2008 McRobert Medal from the UK's Royal Academy of Engineering. Um, It's a really big deal, and what they're offering is a non-invasive solution for early disease detection. It's really cool. It's the future of diagnostics, and um, I look forward to seeing what's coming out next with with that investment. Yeah, I actually, I really really enjoyed writing that story about them, and I was really fascinated by the fact that they are uh, promising, for example, early cancer uh, detection uh, by just using a breathalyzer. So yeah, that's an amazing story, and I'm really happy that uh, they managed to uh, raise money to continue development. So going forward, uh, let us talk about uh, Amazon. 
and uh, the wages it pays its workers. After the numerous attacks, and uh, I mean, we've all seen that, on the company's payment practices, Amazon has announced that it will raise minimum wages for all its workers in the US and in the UK. In the US, it means an increase from $11 to $15 per hour. In the UK, it's a bit more complicated. So the current minimum is £8 per hour. And after the bump, the minimum will be $10.50 an hour in London and $9.50 in the rest of the country. Uh, the change comes in effect in, on November 1st, and it will apply to all full and part-time workers, but also seasonal employees and temporary workers hired by recruitment agencies. This is a pretty important point here because a pretty big part of people working on Amazon facilities are not actually hired by the company directly. So Amazon has been criticized for years over the inadequate pay it offered its workers. So the move was received pretty positively uh, both in the UK and in the US. Trade union representatives in the UK still said that Amazon needs to improve working conditions for its employees. So uh, I do hope that uh, something on this front uh, also follows soon. Yeah, and I in the US, Bernie Sanders was tweeting support for Amazon for this move. So it's really quite a diversion from what Amazon has been doing in the past. But not all the news is good, right? I mean, didn't we also learn that Amazon is backtracked um, with offering stock bonuses for its employees in light of this new income levels? Yeah, it kind of got really complicated very soon after the initial announcement. Uh, so uh, what wasn't received positively at all by uh, all the regulators and general public is this uh, counter move that uh, Amazon made at the same time. It was reported, I think, by Bloomberg that uh, Amazon scraped the bonus programs and stock awards for its warehouse workers, which at least in the US could amount to hundreds of dollars a month. And Amazon said, however, that uh, uh, the employees will still get paid more than before. And uh, even if you take into account uh, the elimination of the bonuses, it's, uh, it's still going to be uh, more uh, money for warehouse workers. Here's a part of its uh, uh, statement I have here uh, quoted by iNews. So the quote begins, uh, the significant increase in hourly cash wages more than compensates for the phase out of RSUs, that is restricted stock units. Uh, quote continues, we can confirm that all hourly operations and uh, customer service employees will see an increase in their total compensation as a result of this announcement. In addition, the compensation will be more immediate and predictable. Quote ends. And here, actually, I would like to say something in defense of Amazon in general, because when we all attacked uh, the company over the low pay, nobody ever said, uh, like, wait, guys and girls, it's not all bad. Uh, there, are also, there are also bonuses uh, being paid to the workers, so uh, they actually earn more. No, we always looked at uh, the wages. Uh, so here we are right now. The wages are increased, and uh, I don't really have any reasons not to believe Amazon that its employees in the warehouses uh, will take home more money every week or month than before. Also, these new wages are in line with the Living Wage Foundation's uh, guidelines in the UK. So this one is, I think, a positive uh, thing for the market and for Amazon. Also, in addition to all that, on the BBC, Helen Thomas made an interesting point about uh, this uh, wage increase. Uh, it's a bit of an oversimplification here, but uh, one could say uh, that in the 
UK, paying part of the wages as stock bonuses uh, kind of helped Amazon to pay less money in taxes over the years. Uh, just look at these numbers. In 2017, the company paid £1.7 million on profits of £72.4 million. That's 2.3% compared to normal corporate tax in the UK of 19%. So way, way less than expected. And it turns out that the stock bonus scheme uh, accounted for quite a bit of this difference. So starting from November 1st, we should see Amazon paying more taxes, unless, of course, it uh, comes up with another uh, tactic to dodge them. So in general, as I said, I think we should agree here that Amazon has at least made a step in the right direction. And the only reservation I still hear about it is that the UK is not the only European country where Amazon has its warehouses. Uh, in July this year, uh, on the so-called Prime Day, that's like a big sale on Amazon, uh, warehouse workers in Spain, Poland and Germany called a strike demanding better working conditions and fair pay. So, which basically means that the problem is not uh, localized uh, to the US and the UK. And my question to Amazon in this case would be, so how about all the people working for the company in France, in Germany, Poland, Italy, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Spain? Is there actually something in store for them? Are they also going to uh, get uh, fair wages and better working conditions? It doesn't really seem likely so far that Amazon is going to pay much attention to these locations that is unless we pay more attention to that and we write about it more and we talk about it more yeah and i think that's a really fair question and it's it's important to raise because i know that workers in the warehouses in germany have been striking and raising grievances for a really long time and it's curious why amazon hasn't sought to answer um, those questions and kind of commit their income raises to the U.S. and the U.K. It's it's a curious question why they've left these other countries out. Yeah, I think it's just the beginning of the story. And uh, I do hope that at the end of the day, uh, Amazon will kind of <clears throat> will get to pay the fair uh, wages to uh, the people in all countries. So and uh, I, I think I will try to I will try to reach out to them for a comment and uh, I will let everybody know if uh, I hear anything back. Uh, in the meantime, next item in the podcast is an interview uh, recorded by our founding editor, uh, Robin Wouters. Uh, the interview is with uh, Jonas Hackstein, uh, the co-founder and CTO of Monzo. Uh, check out this conversation and we will be back in a few minutes with more news. This is Robin Wouters uh, from Tech.eu, and I'm here at the Bits and Pretzels conference in Munich. I'm sitting down with Jonas, who's one of the co-founders of Monzo, a UK-faced uh, fintech company. Uh, for those who don't know Monzo, can you give us like a brief, a brief description of what the company is and does? Yeah, sure. So uh, Monzo is a UK-based um, app-based bank account. So anybody can download the app, sign up, and they get a full-fledged bank account. We, we're about three and a half years in, have a million bank accounts opened. Um, we have a full retail banking license, which uh, means that your deposits are insured and that we're actually directly connected to all of the payment schemes. And so uh, for us, we're currently at the state, at this inflection point where we've done all of the work to get us in a position where we can really start iterating on the core banking experience. Um, how, how difficult was it to obtain uh, the banking license and what does it give you in terms of like, access to Europe? Um, 
It was very difficult. It was much more difficult than we thought. Our very first blog post said we'll launch in one year's time, and then we launched as a full, fully licensed bank two and a half years later. Um, it comes with a lot of corporate governance requirements that you normally don't have until you're a publicly traded company, so you have to have a uh, just a fairly um, large overhead structure. But on the upside, it means that uh, you get deposit protection, that you can open a central bank account, that you can connect to the payment scheme. So that gives you a fairly deep mode uh, compared to competitors that aren't actually banks. Uh, in terms of what it means for Europe as it stands until Brexit uh, potentially goes through, we are able to passport our banking license to other European countries, which is a lot less work than getting a new banking license, and that would allow us to run a bank in those countries effectively. I was going to try and avoid uh, the Brexit issue, but since you mentioned it, um, does, is that a big source of uh, concern at the company? Uh, no, it's not something we lose sleep over. Um, I, my personal opinion is that it may well not happen in the end, but I realize that that's a, a very op uh, optimistic, not widely shared belief, but I just think it will turn out to be so, so difficult to do any kind of Brexit um, that they'll pull back in the last second. Well, I feel like we're running out of time to actually do anything else than Brexit at this point, so um, I think it will happen, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> but either way, um, you talked about those also expanding to the U.S. Uh, like what, what kind of timing do you have in mind for that? Yeah, so our mission is to make money work for everyone. And by that, mean, we mean really actually everyone should have access to, to the Monzo experience. At the moment, it's only in the UK. Um, the next point of expansion for us is the US because the language is the same. Uh, there's five times as many people as in the UK. We already have a customer service office in the US. The culture around money is very similar. The product experience can be very similar. So it just makes sense to go there next. Uh, but just in the UK, you've already signed up a million customers. Nothing to sneeze at. How do you actually do that? How do you? What's your go-to-market strategy, to put it in those words? Yeah, so all of that growth has been completely organic. So um, except for small experiments to you know, begin to estimate what our customer acquisition cost might be on advertising. All of this has just come from word of mouth. Um, and so I, I suppose our strategy has been to, A, make a product that people really like and they like to talk about with their friends. B, make a product that gets better if you use it with your friends. And then C, give people the tools in the product to allow them to invite other people to join them on the Monzo. And in terms of product, um, what does the roadmap look like? Uh, roughly, you don't have to spill out the deal all the details, but... Uh Sort of what's the, the plan for the next 12 months in terms of product? Yeah, so it's definitely not a secret. Um, we have a public uh, product roadmap on the internet. Uh, you, can, you can find it uh, linked from our website or in our community forum. There's often sneak peeks about what we're doing next. Uh, one thing that's coming out quite soon is savings accounts or savings pots, as we call them. So you can stash away money and earn an interest on them, um, which has been a much requested feature. And then uh, in the next quarter, a lot of work will be done to just strengthen and improve the key product experience so just the normal day-to-day -day running of a bank account um, because as we've added features over the last year or so we, you know the app got a little bit cramped from time to time um, but, but yeah one of the most interesting features of Monza in my opinion is a, a pretty basic one but so valuable is that letting people manage their um, finance and sort of um, control their spending, um, just be smarter about where they spend yeah. their money and why, right? So uh, is that something that's really important to you? Yeah, definitely. So the problem we're trying to solve is that people are anxious about their money and don't feel in control. And that was really the key idea. So 
um, in the Monzo app, you can set yourself budgets, you can get alerts, you can you can even uh, say that uh, you don't want to be allowed to do gambling transactions until until you speak to somebody from customer service. So we're really, really trying to put an emphasis on how do you allow people with their various different requirements to control their money in the best possible way. Um, I have to ask, because we're in Germany, and one of your biggest competitors is from here. They were also at the panel uh, yesterday with you, uh, N26. Uh, the other one, uh, Elephant in the Room, is, of course, Revolut. How do you look at these companies? How do you, do you feel like you compete against them rather than the big banks? Or how do you feel about that? Yeah, so uh, N26 is entering the UK um, uh, in the fourth quarter this year. I think it'll be really interesting to, to see what that means for the market. At a high level of abstraction, though, I, We are still, all of us fintech challenger banks, we're taking customers off of large four banks. We're not competing with each other because there's not enough people to, to pull customers from. So in practice, most of the sort of fintech and startup people will have an account with N26, Monzo, Revolut, Starling, with all of them all at once. But most normal people that we sign up just come from Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds. And I think new entrants in the market actually can really help us because it educates customers that this is a normal thing to use an app-based bank. So, so any advertising money that any competitor spends to a certain extent also benefits us in that people will think it is acceptable to use a bank for uh, a banking app without any branches. Uh, a bit more broadly speaking, you're a well-funded um, startup in the UK, uh, but you're originally from Germany. Um, so how do you... Do you Can you compare the European, well, the, the German and the UK ecosystem? How do you think about European tech in general? Yeah, so I studied in Munich um, and was, was relatively plugged in at the time into the tech scene here. And this has really been, this conference today has been the, the first time I've been back in almost 10 years really interacting with this, um, with this crowd. And a lot have changed, has changed since then. So I can't really comment on... On, on where we are exactly yet, yet, but some observations are that there seem to be a lot of companies doing really, really well inside Germany, but most of them are not so well known outside of Germany yet. That's maybe a bit different from uh, perhaps some of the startups coming out of uh, Sweden or uh, some of the startups coming out of London. But even there, we're seeing with N26 and Silonis and some others um, that there's this sort of a cohort, a generation of startups that seems to be able to go out of Germany as well. Great. Well, Jonas, thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck with Monzo. Thank you. Hello again. This is still uh, the podcast by tech.eu, episode number 90. We are talking about the most uh, interesting and important news stories from the past week. And uh, now let us talk about food and about uh, a 20 million pounds uh, funding round uh, for a company called Huel. Yeah, so this week I really wanted to talk about this story that that you wrote, Andre, especially because it's generated quite a bit of commentary online. So Huel, the UK food startup, has secured a 20 million pound funding round from Highland Capital. So if you're not aware, what what is Huel? Well, the company's name um, gives some indication, a combination between human and and fuel. So they offer a number of nutritionally complete foods, so powders and flavorings that can be combined to make meal shakes. And they also have meal bars. So according to their site, there have been over 25 million fuel meals bought, more than feeding London and Paris combined. So this is the company's first investment after three years of bootstrapping. Last year, they earned over 14 million pounds in revenue, and they brought their, their product to the United States. So if you can stomach it, 
all-in-one meals like Huel really have the potential to make an impact on lots of lives. It's part of why the company got started and something that they mentioned, that we're in the middle of a food crisis where modern methods of food production are inefficient, inhumane, and unsustainable. At the same time, people are fatter than ever before, and they cite some, some statistics about diabetes as well. So drinking Huel certainly saves time and is more efficient. And while they don't mention it on the site, from a perusal of their ingredients, it appears that Huel is vegan. So they're animal friendly as well. Um, they should promote that if that's the case. And if not, they should clear that up for interested followers. I haven't really thought about that much before, but now after actually writing that story, I've been kind of thinking that I probably should try this uh, Huel at least for the days that I'm working on a co in a co-working space, which is like one or two days a week. And it's always a problem to go somewhere uh, to have lunch, uh, especially when there are news to write and stuff to do and calls to make. So yeah, I think this would be a great place and time for me to get some water, some powder and uh, have a lunch uh, straight at my laptop. Yeah, and it's great for if you're working on a deadline, but despite being called the future of food, you probably don't want to live off Huel entirely. Uh, changing your diet to Huel or one of the other alternatives requires quite a bit of dedication. And there are some side effects, mostly social ones, when, when you're skipping meals with friends and family. So a few years ago, when I was living in Cologne, I was doing a pretty intense course at a research institute there. And it was around the same time that Soylent was really taking off in the U.S. And I did a little experiment, experiment myself to replace two meals a day with these, with these alternatives. So Huel wasn't around at the time, but I did a combination of what you could get in Europe. So I had some, I tried Bertrand from Germany, Plenty Shake from the Netherlands. At the time, it was called Joylent. And the Jake Shake, oh, that's from the Netherlands also. So I actually drank this for a month and it didn't turn me off these foods completely. And a little bit later, the journalist Rob Price drank only Huel for a week and he documented the process for Business Insider. He has a really charming slideshow about it, um, but our experiences were pretty similar in that these meal replacements do make you feel full, but you still miss eating real food. So if you're eating Huel or Shake, diet replacer exclusively, you're, you're not really a happy person. And part of that is because you're missing food, but also you're missing the social aspect of food. So sharing it with friends and what have you. So they're a great alternative when you're on the go, or if you would wind up getting something unhealthy when you're strapped for time. And that's how a lot of these foods got started. For example, Bertrand, my favorite of the ones that I've tried so far, it really markets itself as a food for outdoor people, extreme athletes, people that are hiking and camping. And I think it's really excellent in that capacity. Um, bringing it into the city um, works fine too. So I really like the testing and research that goes into these foods and kind of all the excitement in this space and the more competition you the consumer will really benefit from that okay next time i go hiking and camping which i do well fairly often i will try to take a few of these uh, things with me and do some tasting and i will i will report back so but with all the with all these uh, different things uh, what's the what's the funding landscape uh, like uh, in this industry did they all get a lot of money more or less than a uh, huel 
So um, I think investors are pretty keen in this area, but it's something that's definitely growing in Europe. So if we look globally, Soylent is probably the one that's best known, and it was founded in LA in 2013. And it's really the undisputed leader, um, raising 72.4 million US dollars. And Soylent has only just been released in the UK, so five years after it was founded. And so in that time, a lot of EU alternatives have had the chance to kind of grow up and flourish, um, including the ones that I mentioned previously. Most of these companies, however, are bootstrapped. Um, but one exception is called Ambronite, and they're from Finland, and they've raised about 700 or so um, thousand US dollars from angel investors and also lifeline ventures. Ampronite is a little bit different from some of these other meal replacement um, in that it's green and it has a lot of um, plant-based material in it. Um, but people seem to really like it. So with a lot of new entrants to this space, maybe we need to set up this European taste test. So if you're listening, um, let us know um, if you would be interested in hearing the results on that. And we'll try to set up something, maybe for Thanksgiving, perhaps. So in any case, congrats to Huel and it's Hueligans. That's the hashtag for the brand's devotees. They're pretty dedicated. You can find them on Instagram. Um, pretty entertaining feed, actually. Um, but in any case, look forward to seeing what's next for Huel. Do you do you actually see any uh, advertisement from uh, Soylent in the UK already? I have not. I I actually didn't know that it was um, just made available. It's only been on the market here for about three weeks. They have a UK store, um, and I just learned about it by researching for this piece. And they kind of have it to uh, like physically or just online. I think the plan is to have it available in stores. It is in, available mm -hmm. in stores in the U.S. I'm not totally sure on that. I can check. So since it's available in the U.K., you are going to be the one trying Soylent for sure. <laughs> I will if they have a vegan option. I think it is vegan, but I'll check. Yeah. And we'll, we'll do a taste test how the Sounds American <laughs> VC competitor fares to our field of European contenders. Great. Okay, uh, let's move forward and it's time for the second interview of today. And this is uh, the one with uh, Dmitry Zaporozhets, uh, the co-founder and CTO of Europe's freshly minted unicorn GitLab. I recorded this uh, interview a while ago uh, while being in uh, Kharkiv, which is my hometown and also where uh, Dmitry lives. So check this one out uh, and we will be back in a few minutes with a bit more news and much more stuff to share and to talk about. Hello, this is uh, Andrei Degler, journalist at Tech.eu, recording today from the city of Kharkiv, Ukraine. This is a generally nice place, which also happens to be the place uh, where I was born, uh, but uh, also it is the birthplace of GitLab, uh, the company that has uh, recently attracted uh, $100 million in funding at a valuation of uh, $1.1 billion. And today I have a chance to catch up with uh, Dmitry Zaporozhets, uh, the CTO and co-founder of the company, uh, Hi, Dmitry. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Hi. 
So, uh, I mean, I've heard this story already a couple of times, but it would be really great if you could uh, quickly uh, talk about uh, how GitLab started and uh, what it has become uh, today. Yeah. So, long story short, uh, it started an open source project. Uh, it was a hobby that uh, I and my friend shared together for months, probably. Just built something that we want uh tools that we would like to use by our own and install on our server. And since then, it's grown in a huge open source project with more than 2,000 people contributed to it. And now it's a company behind it. And we have 350 people working from 45 countries. Uh, companies remote only, not a single office. And I think we are doing great, actually. <laughs> Right, so it kind of started as a, a sort of a competition uh, to GitHub, but now, as far as I understand, it's not that anymore, right? Uh, as far as I understand, it's, it's kind of something more, something more than that. I would say it started not as a competition to GitHub, but mostly we needed a self-hosted tool, and uh, GitHub was accessible back then. It was uh, great, but it was a SaaS version. They had, I believe. GitHub Enterprise Edition, but this one was really expensive and you need quite a hardware to run it. So in some way, we just fill in the gap of self-hosted uh, Git version control tool. And now, yeah, now it grows into much more now that we have CI, CD, advanced issue trackers, security scanners, and all sorts of tools combined into a single application. It's more like I would say it's a single application for entire DevOps lifecycle. So you start from planning something and then you write a code, you verify it by testing, then you package it, release it, deploy it, and all those stages covered by GitLab. Right. So you said that you have uh, more than 300 uh, people working, but not a single office. Uh, was that a conscious decision? And uh, how do you manage to keep uh, all the people like, close to the idea and keep the vision aligned? Like with many things, it developed organically. So originally, when we started, we could not afford an office, and it was only few people from different countries. So there was like no sense in having an office at all because we could not meet physically. And once we grow, we hired people from, from different areas just, just because we looked for best talent we could afford. At some point, it, uh, we maybe probably could bring all people in one place, but we decided to give this, try this idea of keep doing things like we did before, just hiring people, best people from different places and try to keep our low burn rate by hiring people from uh, lower rent areas and so on. And it worked so far. I, I would say that Maybe at some point someone was skeptical, but looking at the way how it is right now, we are, we are pretty confident we will be able to grow it to 500 people or even to 1,000 people. I think one of the main uh, requirements that you need f for people to be able to work in such a way remotely is that uh, they need to be self-motivated. You, you need to People who can organize their work days, who don't need babysitting, don't need a manager standing behind them to do their work, right? And that's that's one of 
of few things that you need to build that efficient remote team is you need uh, strong motivated people that can organize themselves. You need asynchronous communication because different time zones, different places, you can't rely on immediate communication anymore. And then you need clear set of rules and understanding who work on what. And once you have it, you're totally fine. There is uh, no downside compared to a physically located offices. It, it just works. Speaking of uh, uh, organizing your own work days and all, so how about yourself? How does uh, your uh, working day uh, look on average? Okay, so I start late in the morning, maybe around 10 a.m., 10, 11 a.m. First thing I do, I check Slack. Yeah, I chat messages for, for direct messages or maybe some mentions where people actually wanted my faster reaction. Uh, so I go through those and it can take a while. It can bring you to some issue and merge request and take some time. But in the end, once I get uh, done with Slack, I just look through emails to see if there is uh, something urgent there. And then I go to the GitLab and I checked my to-dos list. So in GitLab, we have this to-do feature, which is a list of items where you were mentioned or issues that were assigned to you or merge request uh, requires your approval, such kind of thing. So I go through to-dos list. Once I'm done there, I probably just go uh, to my next issue. Um, I have usually two, three... I would say three scenes, three big scenes planned for for uh, next few months, and it's just like ongoing effort, and I'm working on them once uh, once I did with uh, with all scenes I mentioned previously. So it's a it's a distributed team, and uh, even uh, your co-founder sits uh, is uh, is not uh, close uh, to you in terms of time zones. He lives in San Francisco these days. So did you consider moving to the U.S. Uh, yourself together with uh, your co-founder? Uh, not now. So I don't. I don't see much benefit of me moving to US. I mean, like if it won't help company much, uh, then there is no primary motivation for me to do so. I feel pretty comfortable uh, living in Ukraine right now, and as long as I can do my work efficiently, I uh, yeah, I probably prefer to stay in <laughs> low rent area. <laughs> right. So I, I, well, another thing I wanted to ask, what did you think, if you remember, what did you think when you realized that you are a co-founder of a unicorn company? What were the first thoughts? <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite exciting moment. I certain part of me probably still can couldn't believe it, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's exciting and it's validation. It's validation that efforts that were put during last seven years. Those actually were something, and um, all those uh, people that contribute to GitLab and make it happen, it's, it's again validation for me, a value of open source product, of community. You can actually build something that is open source, that is valuable, and it's also validation of dev tools for me. I think we all get to use that, I don't know, social networks, such kind of stuff costs a lot of money. But for DevTools, it's not quite common. And I'm really glad to see that tools that make 
that enables other people to make their work actually actually worth a lot. Right. I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, I interviewed you both, uh, you and Sid, 2014 at the next web conference. And back then uh, you said that you had 0.1% of uh, paying customers. Do you think this number changed uh, much since then, the percentage? It's definitely growing. I don't uh, I don't own numbers. I have like I, I can't say uh, by how much, but it is growing. And <laughs> our recent valuation is basically a result of of a growing customer base. And uh, I think that GitLab Community Edition is helping here a lot because what happened is that we get a lot of people using GitLab, but now some companies that have community edition installed want some more advanced enterprise feature, maybe high availability, maybe security scanner. So they upgrade and over time it uh, it grows our customer base by a lot. Right. And now the last question. Uh, I read uh, your most uh, recent interview for Ukrainian publication uh, where you said that you are not commenting on whether or not you have uh, uh, received requests, like acquisition uh, requests from different companies. But uh, how about we look at it in a different way? Do you think there is any company that you would definitely not consider selling to? Like something really evil that you would definitely say, no, 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 we're not going to be acquired by these guys? Uh, it's a really tricky question because if I like you know pick up one one company, it's uh, it will be kind of <laughs> a hating scene, and I'm <laughs> I'm not this kind of a person to hate particular companies. It, I would say that I rather not sell GitLab at all, and uh, I believe in GitLab brand, and I want it to grow, and I want us to stay independent if possible, right? But if ever the acquisition scene will ever come up i uh yeah i think we'll we'll look at the we'll look from the position how good company treating open source how they're perceived on by users by developers but again uh that's not what i want i want an uh strong independent gitlab and <laughs> yeah well we we're working towards this Right. Okay, uh, Dmitry, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for uh, for this uh, catch-up and uh, good luck uh, working on uh, GitLab in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Hello again. Welcome back to our podcast by tech.eu, episode number 90. We are still talking about uh, the news stories of the past week and it's time for the next one. Uh, let us talk about uh, Boulderton's uh, new new fund. Uh, Boulderton Capital, uh, that's the official name of the company, it's a venture fund headquartered in London and it has raised its new fund of uh, 145 million US dollars uh, called Liquidity One. This is supposedly Europe's first fund that focuses solely on the secondary share market. That is on buying shares from early stage shareholders in scale-ups. The fund is led by uh, Laura Connell and uh, Daniel Waterhouse uh, from Boulderton Capital. And uh, to say something, here is a quote from uh, Waterhouse's blog post on Medium about it. A quote begins, With liquidity one, we hope to go some way to addressing the demand, both from startups and from angel and seed investors, for a way to realize a measure of financial gain and return pre-exit while at the same time giving another set of European companies access to the Boulderton family. So the fund will, would buy shares from both
both founders and early shareholders uh, in the startups uh, with the focus, uh, however, on the latter. And uh, Waterhouse also noted uh, that the fund is committed to following up only if it gets the endorsement of the company in question. So basically, if a startup does not want uh, Balderton to buy its uh, shares uh, from its shareholders, then it will just not happening. I would say that uh, having this kind of fund in Europe is generally a great thing. It basically allows the investors to get liquidity earlier than the normal 5 to 10 years time frame. And uh, basically it allows them to recycle uh, this money by investing in more early stage startups. So all in all, a good thing uh, for the ecosystem as a whole and a great thing that we have the first uh, fund of this kind in Europe. Well, and I would agree, um, and especially VC Twitter last week was highly congratulatory towards this news. So I think a lot of people are looking forward to what what potential this fund has and how it can really make a positive impact for the ecosystem. Yeah, I wonder if it also leads to more funds like this uh, uh, appearing uh, uh, on the landscape. So let's uh, let's just keep and keep our eyes open. I think within a year, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be more understandable. So yeah, that was that was pretty much uh, the news of the past week. If you are interested in more news stories, check out uh, our uh, newsletters. Subscribe to our premium newsletter, which has all the news stories uh, from the past week neatly arranged uh, in a few categories. Uh, check uh, check it out on the tag.eu website. Now we can move further on to the part about the events. The season is still on, so Natalie, what should we expect within the next few weeks? So as we move to events, it would really be remiss of us for to not mention the big event news last week, in which Web Summit announced that they would be staying in Lisbon for the next 10 years. It's pretty significant, and especially as a lot of countries and cities were lobbying pretty hard to bring Web Summit to their location. Portugal has invested heavily in the company, and while there's been a few squabbles in the relationship, overall, it really seems to be working out both for Portugal and for Web Summit. So if you will be at Web Summit this year, me and Robin will be there for a little while. So onto, our, onto the event calendar. Andre, where can we find you this week? Yes, yeah, so was speaking about Web Summit. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal, and I mean literally big deal, right? So uh, Portugal's uh, government is going to pay what eleven million euros per year over the next ten years uh, to Web Summit uh, to stay in the city, and they also, as far as I remember, they also agreed to uh, double the size of the venue where uh, where the event happens, which is already like quite big. It's like enormous. So it's it's really an interesting thing, and uh, I was really expecting to uh, see a new city this year because it was uh, highly speculated uh, that uh, uh, somebody else would uh, offer a better a better deal, but apparently it didn't happen. So yeah, I'm not going to Web Summit though uh, this year, and uh, generally for me the next few weeks are going to be a pretty calm time in terms of traveling. But I am traveling right now though. I am uh, right now in Finland in Helsinki. But uh, by the time this uh, podcast gets out, I will probably be 
home or flying home and after that the only place uh, I can be found uh, roaming around is uh, the uh, conference in Amsterdam called uh, uh, World Summit AI. I think I will be there on the second day that is uh, October 11th, uh, so on Thursday. If you are anywhere around, uh, let me know, let's have a coffee and uh, let's talk. So Natalie, you have more plans uh, uh, to travel around, right? Uh, yeah, so this week I'm heading to Health Pioneers in Vienna, which is a one-day conference all about the future of health and medtech, and that's on Wednesday when when this podcast comes out. I really like Pioneers, and I'm going to be moderating a session there on preventative health, so I'll be sure to ask my great panelists what they think about Huel and male replacement shakes. But if you're looking to build your event calendar out for the rest of the month, we've got a number of great events for you. So last week, we talked about what's ahead in Dublin with Sastock and the Uprise Festival. So be sure to catch Robin at Sastock. And then he's going to be heading um, to the third FinTech Belgium Summit held in Brussels on the 22nd of October. They have a really wide program that examines the latest FinTech trends from payments, open banking, APIs, blockchain, AI, machine learning, everything about FinTech. So if you're in Brussels at the end of October, you might want to check that out. And the second event I want to highlight is on October 25th in Paris. Something really special is happening. It's called the Women's Startup Challenge Europe, which is co-hosted by the Mayor's Office of Paris. So on this evening, there'll be 10 female founders pitching their companies to a, jur a jury of top investors and leaders, and they'll be awarded over $60,000 in cash grants. So these finalists were chosen from hundreds of entries, and the selection of companies that are going to be on display is really remarkable. It'll be a really special night, and the female founders are going to be pitching in the City Hall of Paris. So if you've been in Paris and you know the City Hall, it's an incredible building. And tickets are complimentary, so reserve your spot if you're there. Show your support for these great founders and it really has the best of European tech on display. I really wish I could be there. If you want to get tickets to the event, the link is in the show notes, and best of luck to all the founders pitching. I think it'll be really great. So the links to these events and more on our website, just look tech.eu in our events section. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know. We have a link to submit your own event um, in our show notes. Great. Now I actually do feel that I'm missing out. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, and now I know what I'm going to be missing. <clears throat> but yeah, I just hope that I will uh, I will kind of catch up with everything and everyone when I uh, go to the Slush Conference uh, in Helsinki in, uh, in November. Yeah, and remember, if you're going to Paris, watch out for scooters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we don't want any uh, any injuries among our listeners uh, because of the new tech obsessions. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Let's move to our recommendations of books, stories, podcasts, and whatnot. Anything we want to share uh, with our listeners, uh, Natalie, you go first. Sure. So my recommendation this week is a Medium post by Tim Schumacher, the serial entrepreneur and investor. Um, you might know him. His company is called IO. Um, he's the person we all need to thank for Adblock Plus. Um, and his post is about developments over at Ecosia, a company that he's invested in. And you might know Ecosia as the search provider that plants trees. 
So it's often suggested as an alternative for Google search, especially by those that are really trying to limit their dependence on Google. Ecosia has already planted over 39 million trees, and you can watch it count up on their website. The company supports over 30 tree planting projects worldwide. And while the company is really remarkable, this Medium post um, is, is also pretty special because in it, Tim announces that after earning over 10 million euros in revenues, him and Ecosia founder Christian Kroll will turn Ecosia over to their employees and become a self-owned company. So really, what does that mean? And what is a self-owned company? So Tim explains in his post that a cell phone company basically operates like a normal company, but there's two important restrictions. He quotes, quoted, shares can't be sold at a profit or owned by people outside the company. No profits can be taken out of the company either. So he suggests that these restrictions might sound like a terrible idea to most traditional business people. And why would a smart business person want to start a company if they can't sell it or they can't take money out of it? Well, Ecosia, as he goes on to explain, is a radically different kind of company. They're not interested in maximizing profits, and their ultimate goal is to build a greener and better world for everyone. So for Ecosia, it makes perfect sense to become a nonprofit company, and that's what they're going to do. So I think it's really great and it's a super bold move, but also an awesome example of some of the these trends that we've been hearing about lately. We've talked on the podcast before about some of these conversations that have been going on, um, such as those that happened at Tech Festival in Copenhagen that have sought to make startups and tech more human. And the Uprise Festival is also about that, kind of putting people before tech. And here's a real concrete example of how that is actually translating in practice. And I think it's also really significant to mention that 10 million euros in revenues for Ecosia, and that's still a lot of money in search and developing great search products. And the company has over a million users for their Google Chrome extension, a huge following on social media, and they often appear in these top lists for best browser, browser extensions for Chrome. So I think it's pretty notable that you can make a lot of money off of great search tools and also that it's possible to have a great mission-driven, purposeful company that's also profitable. And it's pretty profitable at that. So I think it's a really great example and they've done something really special and now they're giving it back to their employees. Um, It's really remarkable. And I want to give a hat tip for this recommendation from Manuel Coleman of Pirate Global who tweeted about it. Thanks, Manuel, for bringing it to my attention. Really cool thing. Um, and I'm really happy to share it with all of you. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I don't uh, I don't really think I agree with this, uh, let's say, with the paradigm of uh, making this opposition. So on one side, we have doing good. And then on the other side, we have doing business. I wouldn't really I wouldn't really say it has to be like mutually exclusive and that the only way to do something good would be to turn your company into a non-profit and then act uh, like uh, more of a I don't know like a social impact uh, enterprise rather than an actual business. It doesn't really have to have to be like this. And and also for the record I don't use Adblock Plus. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think necessarily that it's setting it up in kind of these two positions as you're either doing good or you're doing business. 
And I think from the beginning, Ecosia's business model has always tried to be kind of a blend between the two. And now they're kind of moving in a more radical direction to really turn turn it over to the employees. And I, I don't think it's necessarily you have to be one or the other. It really kind of exists on this spectrum. And it's kind of taking maybe this more extreme side of that spectrum, but doesn't have to be necessarily one or the other. Yeah, I honestly, I also wouldn't agree with this uh, awarding of turning it over to employees. I mean, yeah, great. Employees now own the shares, but they cannot sell them to anybody but other employees. And they cannot, as far as I understand, sell them for profit. So like, what's, uh, what's the point in that? Like, where, uh, where does the employees uh, benefit uh, come from? It's kind of weird. I think it, it really can come from the fact that the employees are putting their work into something they have a real direct stake in um, and giving them more ownership. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No, it, no it's, it's certainly not bad. I just, I'm just not sure that I'm on board with this kind of limitations on the, on the share sales. But yeah, maybe I'm just not seeing something. I will also read up the post. I always try to read all your recommendations after the podcast, so I'll definitely read up on this one. So I'm, mine is not going to be as deep uh, as yours, uh, as it usually happens. But uh, this week, I actually learned something really surprising. Uh, it turns out uh, that there are still a lot of journalists, uh, but mostly it's uh, those uh, writing for local uh, newspapers, I think in the US, actually. Uh, and these journalists uh, use Microsoft Word and not Google Docs to send their stories to the editors. Like, I would never imagine that myself, honestly, but it's kind of too camps now, uh, one in favor of Google Docs and the other uh, in favor of uh, using Microsoft Word. And that's, I would say, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, where I learned it from is a story on Slate uh, that describes, uh, describes what's going on right now with this kind of move. But it also makes really interesting point that I also wanted to share against uh, using Google Docs, which I can kind of relate to. Uh, it quotes uh, Katie Waldman, uh, who wrote uh, uh, this uh, sentence at some point for the New Yorker. Uh, quote, I cannot be in the same Google Doc as my editor. It is a mutual violation of privacy and the surest route in the Google Cloud to an anxiety attack. Quote ends. And this is, by the way, just exactly what I did uh, a couple of hours earlier today uh, to you, Natalie, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just for the listeners, uh, we normally prepare uh, this podcast in a Google Doc as well. And uh, I just got into Google Doc where uh, Natalie was still uh, shuffling the quotes and whatnot. And then I just saw a spell checker's uh, warning, uh, this like red underlining, and I just couldn't resist the urge to go and uh, fix uh, the typo in the word. And then, uh, and then I get a comment immediately from Natalie, I am still writing. <laughs> So, I mean, I promise I normally don't do that. I promise that I also, I never ever write straight to a Google Doc when I know somebody is watching it and I can't imagine how, how it could be. So I always go somewhere else, like to another text editor offline on my desktop and I just write whatever I want to write and they copy paste it. So Natalie, I apologize again for invading your privacy in such an awful way. No, and I, please, you don't need to apologize, but I can totally totally empathize with this kind of feeling about anxiety attack. Um, this level of oversight, especially for freelancers that are working on projects, it can, um, it really kind of blurs the line. 
especially when on Google Docs, you have like those little bubbles come up in the corner where it says like anonymous turtle or anonymous rabbit like in the corner oh yeah all the all the animals all the animals yeah and and that is almost makes it worse i think when you don't necessarily know who has the link or who shared the link and who is that turtle yeah exactly that that, that, that that's sometimes it gets really creepy especially if you don't know uh, whether the dog like is shared by somebody else uh, to some people you you might even not be aware of so yeah it's kind of weird so yeah let's go so we'll go ahead and uh, uh, check those uh, uh, those stories on slate and the column of uh, uh, of uh, Katie at uh, uh, at newyorker.com and let us know what you are using uh, for your work do you prefer google docs do you prefer uh, microsoft word do you actually uh, do something else uh, for me it's uh, google docs and uh, i always write uh, in a in an editor called uh, sublime uh, text which is actually a coding editor and i'm just used to it so this was pretty much it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope uh, you enjoyed it. Uh, don't miss new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast app. Just uh, look for tech.eu podcast. Tell everyone you know about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any suggestions, uh, questions and opinions at andri at uh, tech.eu. Enjoy the rest of your week. We will talk to you next uh, next Wednesday. Natalie, thank you very much for joining today. Enjoy your trip uh, to Vienna and talk to you very soon. Thank you, Andre. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.